welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Historically, patients had limited pharmacologic options to help manage obesity and primarily had to employ lifestyle modifications or bariatric surgery. Recently, landmark clinical trials were published describing weight loss outcomes with glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 receptor agonists, dual-acting GLP-1s, and glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide receptor agonist. Joining us today is pharmacology expert, Dr. Christina Thurber, to compare weight loss potential and clinical pearls between each of these medication classes, and to educate clinicians on optimal selection of a pharmacologic agent for the treatment of obesity given patient-specific factors. I wanted to present on pharmacotherapy for the treatment of obesity because this is one of the most common, if not the most common questions I get asked about in my primary care internal medicine practice. And I think going through this timeline helps explain why there's been some recent interest in this topic. So what we're looking at is a timeline of FDA approval for different agents for obesity. So starting in 1980, we had approval of Phentermine, or brand name Adipex-P. Then fast forwarding quite a bit to 2012, came Phentermine topiramine approval, uh, marketed under the brand name Qsimia. This also has additional approval for use in pediatric patients age 12 and older. Then in 2014, there was approval of naltrexone bupropion, or Contrave, and a few months later, approval of liraglutide, or Saxenda. Liraglutide also has additional approval for use in pediatric patients age 12 and older, and is FDA approved for treatment of type 2 diabetes, and for that indication is marketed under a different brand name. Then in 2021, we had approval of semaglutide under the brand name Wagovi. And this is also FDA approved. I should say semaglutide is also FDA approved for type 2 diabetes marketed under a different brand name. There's been some great data with semaglutide and a lot of interest in this product. And then in 2022, we had approval of terzepatide or Munjaro. This is currently FDA approved for type 2 diabetes, but has some robust weight loss data that we'll go through toward the end of the presentation, also generating a lot of news in the media and interest from patients in utilizing a therapy like this. So learning objectives for the discussion today are listed here. First, we'll go through pharmacotherapy for the treatment of obesity and explain mechanisms of action for each class, then discuss and compare the clinical data and weight loss outcomes for the various treatment options, and determine an optimal pharmacologic regimen for the treatment of obesity given patient-specific factors. Jared already mentioned disclosures for this talk, and I just want to make one additional note. So depending on where you may look at for treatment of obesity, you may see the options of Lorcaserin and Orlistat listed. So Lorcaserin was actually removed from the market in 2020 due to an association with cancer. Uh, so that is no longer a treatment option for patients with obesity. Orlistat remains on the market. It's prescribed under the brand name Zenical or available OTC as Ally. 
We won't be spending time discussing it today, primarily just due to time constraints and a general lack of interest from patients in utilizing it, given its need to be taken three times daily and gastrointestinal adverse effects. Okay, I'd like to begin with some background here. Obesity is a complex disease in which abnormal or excess body fat impairs health. It has effects on patients' health, quality of life, and lifespan. Importantly, people with obesity experience weight bias and stigma, which leads to increased complications and mortality independent of their weight or BMI. Weight bias is thinking that people with obesity do not have enough willpower or are not cooperative to lose weight on their own, and stigma is acting on those weight bias beliefs. And so thinking about how best to treat obesity and thinking of it as a chronic disease, the mainstays of therapy are going to be medical nutrition therapy and exercise. I really cannot stress the importance of this enough. All of the clinical trials we're going to go through today um, had a lot of counseling on diet and exercise. And so those two are key components in the treatment plan for obesity. When we think about treatment, we have options such as psychological approaches um, with cognitive behavioral change, managing sleep, time, and stress, psychotherapy as needed. And there's also the option for bariatric surgery, which is probably the most effective option that we have currently for management of obesity. But in today's talk, we're going to be focusing on medications that help weight loss and help maintain weight loss. Okay, so starting with going over how these medications work. So we're going to start by talking about the hypothalamus in the brain, which is the appetite regulatory center. Starting with phentermine, so this stimulates release of norepinephrine from the hypothalamus. Release of norepinephrine activates that fight or flight response, which has a variety of things that it causes in the body, but one of which is appetite suppression. When phentermine is combined with topiramate, um, we've seen that the effects of topiramate or the effects of phentermine tend to become prolonged, allowing for prolonged weight loss and maintaining of weight loss. Topiramate works by blocking neuronal sodium channels and enhancing GABA activity. And how this translates into helping reduce appetite is not very well understood, um, but again, does help with prolonging the benefits of phentermine, which phentermine alone right now is, is just recommended for short-term use. Also, naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. Bupropion is a weak inhibitor of neuronal uptake of dopamine and norepinephrine. So with having more norepinephrine available from bupropion, um, it works in a similar way that phentermine does um, by allowing for appetite suppression. And when combining bupropion with naltrexone, there is a synergistic benefit on reduction of appetite. Next, we'll talk about the GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, which are liraglutide and semaglutide. And then there's also the option of terzepatide, which combines GLP-1 receptor agonist potential along with GIP, which is glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. So what happens with food ingestion, um, when it reaches the small intestine, there is secretion of GLP-1 and GIP. And these hormones have effects in various parts of the body. 
So starting with the brain, GLP-1 helps to decrease appetite and increase satiety. Both GLP-1 and GIP help increase glucose-dependent insulin secretion, which is how they're beneficial for management of type 2 diabetes. In the stomach, GLP-1 helps to decrease gastric emptying, so food is contained in the stomach longer, helping to promote that feeling of being fuller longer. And last, GIP, this is really where GIP comes into play, is it helps increase adipocyte metabolism and adipose tissue. So this brings us to our first audience response question. You can respond using pollev.com slash mayorx or using the PollEV app. So which pharmacologic agent that we've gone over so far um, and site of action are correctly matched? Um, option A, fentramine, topiramate, and the brain. B, naltrexone, bupropion, and the brain. Um, C, liraglutide and brain, pancreas, and stomach. Or D, all of the above. Okay, so the majority of you selected D, all of the above, and that is the correct answer. Um, those uh, three agents are correctly matched in their um, site of action for helping to uh, promote weight loss. Now we're going to go through the agents individually, starting with oral agents, fentramine topiramate and naltrexone bupropion. Fentramine topiramate um, is marketed under the brand name Qsimia, as I mentioned. It involves immediate release fentermine, which typically when used as monotherapy, develops tolerance within a few weeks. Um, and there is extended release topiramate, which is also approved for migraine prevention and seizures, as well as other off-label uses. When combined together, it is available as an extended release capsule in four different strengths and given as a single daily dose in the morning without regard to meals. So what I have listed here is the titration schedule as recommended by the manufacturer, starting with a dose of 3.75 milligrams of fentramine and 23 milligrams topiramate. So we're using low doses of fentramine topiramate here. It is initiated for two weeks and then increased to seven and a half milligrams and 46 milligrams, and that is taken for 12 weeks. Patients should then be reevaluated if they have not achieved at least 3% of weight loss from their baseline, they should then be advanced onward. If they have achieved a weight loss of at least 3%, they can maintain the seven and a half, 46 milligram dose. If they advance onward, they do 11 0.25 milligrams and 69 milligrams for two weeks, and then go to the other maintenance dosing option of 15 milligrams fentermine and 92 milligrams topiramate. And again, that is reevaluated after 12 weeks. And if patients have not achieved at least 5% of weight loss, then it is recommended that it be removed from their treatment plan as it's not, if it hasn't been effective at that point, it likely will not be effective. Um, but I will say the medication needs to be tapered and not abruptly discontinued due to the topiramate component. Now let's look at the phase three clinical trials for fentramine topiramate. We're going to go through three of them, equip, conquer, and sequel. Looking at the methodologies, um, things were fairly similar with some, with some different nuances. So in the equip trial to be included, patients had to have a BMI of at least 35. There were three treatment arms they could be randomized to. 
phentermine topiramate low dose, phentermine topiramate high dose, and they were appropriately titrated up to that dose, or placebo. In the CONQUER trial, patients could be included if they had a BMI of at least 27, um, but no higher than 45, and they had to have at least two weight-related comorbidities. And they were randomized to the maintenance dose of 7.5, 46 milligrams, or 15, 92 milligrams. And that was compared to placebo. And the sequel trial was an extension of the CONQUER trial. So patients had to complete the CONQUER trial, and then they continued on in the treatment arm um, for an additional year. And that was compared to placebo. And all three studies um, had a follow-up. The first two had a follow-up of 56 weeks, and then sequel was 56 weeks from the CONQUER study and then an additional 56-week follow-up period. So these studies were looking at a, a pretty wide time frame for outcome. And all of the studies we're going to talk about today look at percent change in weight rather than just actual kilograms lost. And the amount of patients who had a reduction in weight of at least 5%, which is defined as clinically meaningful. So looking at the change in weight outcomes in the EQUIP trial, you can see that the change in weight was 5.3% for the low dose, 12.2% for the high dose versus 1.2% for the placebo. So in other words, that represents a treatment difference of about 11% in the fentermine topiramate group, high dose compared to placebo. Um, listed below um, for the EQUIP column, you can see the percent of patients who achieved a reduction in weight of at least 5%. Um, so you can see the higher dose performed better, had, had a stronger outcome, more patients who achieved weight reduction of at least 5% versus placebo. Looking at, the Conquer study, looking at the Conquer study, excuse me, we saw a fairly similar outcome with fentermine topiramate outperforming placebo um, with the best results seen with the higher dose. And 62 to 70% of patients in that study had a weight loss of at least 5%. When they continued on treatment into the sequel study, uh, the weight loss was even larger. So this is weight loss from week zero to week 108. Uh, so they had some additional weight loss when they continued therapy for another year. Uh, and more patients went on to achieve a reduction in at least of at least 5%. So there was good maintenance of weight loss seen here. Next, I'd like to talk a little bit about adverse effects and things we need to consider with fentermine topiramate therapy. So the most reported and dose-dependent adverse events include dry mouth, dizziness, constipation, insomnia, altered taste, and paresthesias. Patients in this study had, patients in the trials had improved depressive symptoms and no increase in suicide risk. And the reason I mention this is topiramate monotherapy has been associated with neuropsychiatric events, raising concern about the safety of this in patients who have depression or mental health concerns, uh, but no concerns were raised regarding that in these trials. Monitoring is recommended for the following, so hypokalemia and decreased sodium bicarbonate, elevations and resting heart rate, and that's due to the fentermine, um, the uh, stimulant nature of fentermine, and this should generally be avoided in anyone with a cardiovascular history. It is a C4 medication. 
Contraindications include pregnancy, glaucoma, and hyperthyroidism. I will say that with pregnancy, the manufacturer actually recommends baseline pregnancy and monthly pregnancy testing for women of childbearing age who do take this medication. Okay, next we'll move into the other oral agent, naltrexone bupropion or Contrave. This includes extended release naltrexone, which is approved for alcohol and opioid dependence, and extended release bupropion, which we use for depression and smoking cessation. Um, and bupropion itself has previously been investigated as monotherapy for obesity, um, providing on average about 2.8 kilogram weight loss, um, which was a bit stronger when combined with naltrexone, as we'll see in the clinical trials. It's available as an extended release tablet in a single strength and given once daily with, or, or given without regard to meals up to twice daily. So for anyone who has initiated extended release metformin, this medication is initiated in a similar fashion, starting with one tablet daily for a week, then one tablet twice daily for a week, then two in the morning, one in the evening for a week, to a target dose of two tablets in the morning, two tablets in the evening, um, or 30 to 360 milligrams. It is recommended that it be taken for 12 weeks in this fashion and then re-evaluated. If the patient has not achieved at least 5% weight loss, then it is recommended to discontinue and consider an alternative option. We'll go through three phase three clinical trials, the CORE-2 study, the CORE-BOMD or behavior modification study, and the CORE diabetes study. So starting with CORE-2, to be included, patients had to have a BMI of 30 to 45 or 25, excuse me, 27 to 45 with comorbid dyslipidemia or hypertension. Patients were randomized and titrated up to a target dose of naltrexone 32 milligrams, bupropion 360 milligrams, and that was compared to placebo. In the core BMOD study, patients had to have a BMI of 30 to 45 or 27 to 45 with dyslipidemia or hypertension. What was different about this study compared to CORE-2 is that both treatment arms received behavior modification um, in the form of diet and exercise. Both of those studies had a follow-up of 56 weeks. And then in the CORE diabetes study, they included patients with a BMI of 27 to 45 who also had type 2 diabetes. Again, titrating up to the target dose of naltrexone bupropion and compared that to placebo with a 56-week follow-up. The co-primary outcomes for these studies were change in weight, percent change in weight, and reduction of weight of at least 5%. So looking at the CORE-2 study, what you're seeing listed here is the reduction, the average reduction in weight for the treatment arm versus placebo. So a reduction of 6.4% versus one2 um, And then patients who achieved a weight reduction of at least 5% was 50 was about 51% in the treatment group versus 17% in placebo. So statistically significant improvement here, but not quite as robust as fentramintopyramine. In the core um, behavior modification study, outcomes were better, but they were also better for placebo as expected when behavior modifications are strictly adhered to. <clears throat> and then in the core diabetes study, um, again, 
the, the percent change in weight was better for the naltrexone bupropion group compared to placebo. And about half the patients in that study achieved a weight loss of at least 5% um, versus about 20% with placebo. So speaking a little more to naltrexone bupropion and adverse effects and clinical considerations. So discontinuation rate in the clinical trials due to adverse effects was about 24% compared to placebo, which was about 12%. So pretty well tolerated overall. Most reported adverse events were nausea, constipation, headache, vomiting, dizziness, insomnia, dry mouth, and diarrhea. Uh, patients should be monitored for elevations in blood pressure or pulse. This is associated with bupropion due to it increasing norepinephrine levels, which is how it helps to suppress appetite. And elevations in blood pressures were also seen in the clinical trials. So not just a theoretical concern, but something that was actually seen. Contraindications include seizure disorder, anorexia, bulimia, concurrent opioid use, uncontrolled hypertension, and patients with recent CVD were actually excluded. Um, so again, would recommend to avoid use of naltrexone bupropion and fentermetopyramate in anyone with a cardiovascular history, as well as pregnancy. This medication does have a boxed warning that it may um, increase risk of suicidality due to the, the bupropion component, um, but I will share that this warning is consistent with all antidepressants uh, that have the same warning. I should say naltrexone bupropion and fentramine topiramate do require renal and hepatic dose adjustments, and so I would recommend looking at the package insert for guidance on that when in that scenario. And so this brings us to our second audience question. A larger difference, so this is a true-false question. A larger difference from placebo and percentage change in body weight was reported for fentermintopyramate in comparison to naltrexone bupropion in clinical trials. Okay, yes, so this one was a slam dunk, it looks like, for everybody. Um, choice A, this, this is a true statement that the change in weight was more robust for fentermine topiramate. Now, it, the two have never been compared head-to-head, -head, um, but when looking at the, the change in weight, uh, the fentermine topiramate reductions were stronger. Okay, next we're going to move on to injectable agents. Um, these are certainly the most popular among patients. Uh, so we'll speak about liraglutide, semaglutide, and terzepatide. I want to start by spending some time talking about these medications and brand names. Now, normally we don't worry too much about brand names, but when it comes to prescribing these agents correctly, brand names make a very big difference. I would say if there's anything you walk away from with this presentation, it's the information on this slide. So as I mentioned, liraglutide, semaglutide, terzepatide, all three of them are approved for type 2 diabetes due to the effects that they have on the pancreas. They are, the liraglutide and semaglutide are also approved for obesity and are under different brand names. So for type 2 diabetes, liraglutide is Victoza, semaglutide Ozempic, terzepatide is Munjaro. For obesity, liraglutide is, has the brand name Saxenda, semaglutide Wigovi, and terzepatide does not have a brand name for obesity because it is not yet FDA approved for that indication. Now, this becomes important because when you go to prescribe these agents, the 
injection devices are different and the dosing's different. So they cannot be interchanged with one another. If you try to prescribe one for the other indication, it can create problems for patients. So as I mentioned, the dosage forms are not interchangeable. Sometimes we see people try to take the type 2 diabetes dosing devices and increase beyond what they are able to administer. And while this could theoretically be done, it is going to cause issues with patients getting their refills on time from the pharmacy because they're going to burn through their supply faster. Insurance is also going to be an issue here. So if a prior authorization is required, often they're only going to approve the product that matches the correct indication. So it becomes important there. And then lastly, we have seen quite a bit of off-label prescribing of these agents for obesity, um, which has perpetuated drug shortages that we're currently in the midst of now. Um, and all of this compiled together can lead to patient dissatisfaction. So I would just um, recommend to be very careful when prescribing to ensure you're prescribing the correct product for the indication that you're hoping to manage. Okay, so spending time on liraglutide, this comes in a pre-filled multi-dose pen, looks just like an insulin pen and is used just like one as well. Requires a separate prescription for pen needles and delivers doses in intervals of 0.6 milligrams to a maximum dose of three milligrams. It is injected once daily, subcutaneously without regard to meals and slow titration helps with tolerability and gastrointestinal adverse effects. So I have the titration schedule listed here where patients advance up every seven days to a target dose of three milligrams. So this is higher than the maximum dosing approved for type 2 diabetes, which is 1.8 milligrams. If intolerance occurs at any point in the titration, you can certainly slow it down, make sure the patient is able to tolerate before advancing to the next level. So we're going to look at three phase three clinical trials the scale obesity and prediabetes study, scale diabetes, and then scale maintenance. Looking at um, the methodology of these studies, so the scale obesity and prediabetes study included patients with a BMI of at least 30 or a BMI of 27 with comorbid dyslipidemia or hypertension. Patients were randomized to a target dose of liraglutide 3 milligrams daily or placebo. In the scale diabetes study, patients were included if they had a BMI of at least 27 and type 2 diabetes, and they were randomized into one of three treatment arms, liraglutide 3 milligrams daily, 1.8 milligrams daily, or placebo. And then in the maintenance study, patients had to have a BMI of at least 30 or 27 with dyslipidemia or hypertension. What was different about this trial is that there was a four to 12 week run-in period where patients were given a, were, were administered a low calorie controlled diet. Once they achieved a, a weight loss of at least 5%, they were then randomized into a treatment arm of liraglutide or placebo. Follow-up for these studies was 56 weeks, and primary outcomes were change, percent change in weight and reduction of weight of at least 5%. In the scale maintenance study, they also looked at maintenance of weight reduction that occurred in the run-in period. In the 
listed here are the results of the three studies. So you can see for scale obesity and prediabetes, change in weight was um, a reduction of about 8% in comparison to 2.6% for placebo. Uh, for scale diabetes, uh, reductions were 6% versus 4.7% versus 2% for placebo. And then in the scale maintenance study, we saw that patients who were randomized into treatment had additional weight loss or were able to maintain their weight loss, um, whereas the patients who were not put on treatment um, were not able to maintain their weight loss as successfully. So next I want to talk about semaglutide or Wigovi. This is available as a pre-filled single-dose pen with an integrated hidden needle. Um, it is injected once weekly, so that is a, a difference between semaglutide and liraglutide once weekly administration with this product. Um, and slow titration helps with tolerability and gastrointestinal side effects. The titration schedule is a little bit slower for semaglutide um, because patients increase their dose every four weeks instead of every seven days. So it takes a little bit longer to reach a target dose of 2.4 milligrams weekly. So we're going to go through four phase three clinical trials for semaglutide, step one through step four. Okay, so in the step one study, to be included, patients had to have a BMI of at least 30 or 27 with a weight-related comorbidity, randomized to semaglutide 2.4 milligrams or placebo. In step two, patients had to have a BMI of at least 27 with type 2 diabetes, and they were randomized to semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly, semaglutide 1 milligram weekly, which is the type 2 diabetes dosing or placebo. And then in step three, they had to have a BMI of at least 30 or 27 with a weight-related comorbidity. What was different about this study is patients in both groups had a controlled diet on top of their treatment arm. And then in step four, same inclusion criteria, um, but this was more of a maintenance study. So patients were randomized to semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly, and then they were either at week 20, they were either continued on semaglutide or switched over to placebo and outcomes were looked at there. So the results for semaglutide are listed here. Um, as you can see, these are the strongest results that we've gone through in this presentation. So the weight, the change in body weight compared to placebo for semaglutide um, was 14.9% versus 2.4%. Um, so about a 12.5% difference in weight change. And 86% of patients achieved a weight reduction of at least 5%. In step two in the diabetes population, um, similar outcomes were reported in comparison to placebo. And then in step three, we saw the strongest results. Again, this was in combination with a controlled diet, which really speaks to the importance of that in these treatments. And then in step four, again, patients were allowed to continue semaglutide or transition to placebo. So you can see that the placebo arm actually gained weight, whereas the treatment arm lost weight. So in speaking about adverse effects and considerations, I've combined liraglutide and semaglutide here because they behave almost, almost identically when we think about using them in patients. 
So discontinuation rate um, due to adverse events was a little bit higher for liraglutide, 9.8% versus placebo. Um, some people hypothesize that this is because injection is once daily and you have more peaks and troughs compared with semaglutide, which is a little more stable. Um, semaglutide 6.8% versus placebo. Most common adverse events are nausea. Very common for patients to experience this, which is why we start low and go slow with dosing. Um, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, abdominal pain, dyspepsia also reported. Contraindications include a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer or personal history of multiple endocrine neoplasia or pregnancy. It is recommended that patients be monitored for pancreatitis and gallbladder disease as there, this was a low adverse event reported, but was reported in the clinical trials. Primarily if patients present with abdominal pain and are on these medications, pancreatitis and gallbladder disease should be considered in the differential. And then acute kidney injury may occur if patients get dehydrated from their vomiting or diarrhea. So encourage patients to maintain good hydration, seek care if they think they're becoming dehydrated, uh, but the medication itself is not considered to be nephrotoxic. Um, there are no renal or hepatic dose adjustments, which makes this a nice treatment option in patients with those diseases, and is probably our best option for patients with a cardiovascular history. So this brings us to our third audience question. A 48-year-old female presents to clinic to discuss pharmacologic treatment options for obesity. <coughs> She's tried lifestyle modifications for four months with a five-kilogram weight loss that plateaued for the last month. BMI is 35 today. A detailed medical history is taken and is only significant for depression. She is not pregnant. So which option discussed today would be contraindicated? Phentermintopyramate, naltrexone bupropion, semaglutide, or none of the above? Okay, well, the majority said none of the above, and that is the correct answer. None of these treatment options would be contraindicated. Um, Phentermintopyramate, naltrexone bupropion, and semaglutide could all be considered. Um, <clears throat> The fact that she has depression may actually make naltrexone bupropion a worthwhile consideration um, since it already has bupropion in it. Um, as I mentioned, there is concern, there is the black box warning regarding bupropion, um, but that is consistent with all antidepressants. Okay, so next we'll talk about what the guidelines are saying about these agents. Uh, so the American Gastroenterological Association produced a guideline in 2022 um, recommending pharmacological intervention if there's an inadequate response to lifestyle interventions, which would be the case with the, the patient that we just discussed. They actually recommend to prioritize semaglutide over the other approved agents because semaglutide has the, the, the greatest data to date for weight loss. But they do endorse liraglutide, fentermintopyramate, naltrexone bupropion, and either fenter and, and also fentermintopyramate monotherapy as well. 
The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and American College of Endocrinology um, produced a guideline in 2016. So this is before semaglutide was available. Um, but they too recommend addition of pharmacotherapy um, and that this leads to greater weight loss than lifestyle modification alone. And that selection of an agent should be individualized given patient preferences, comorbid conditions, and other factors that are important. Next, I'd like to share some information about terzepatide. So this is the new kid on the block and raising a lot of buzz. Um, and I think looking at the data might explain why. Um, so it is um, approved for type 2 diabetes under the name Munjaro. It is not yet approved for obesity, but that is likely forthcoming, uh, barring any concerns reported in clinical trials that are expected. So we're going to talk about the Surmount 1 trial that was published in 2022, and there are three other Surmount trials expected later this year. So in Surmount 1, um, there was a 72-week follow-up window, so a little bit longer than the other trials we looked at. Um, they looked at change in body weight for three different tercepatide doses, 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams, and compared those to placebo. And as you can see, when titrated up to 15 milligrams, change in body weight on average was 20.9%, which is, which is quite good <laughs> and definitely the best that we've seen among the trials we've discussed today. In this group, patients who achieved at least a 5% reduction in body weight was, 90, was, was about 91%. Um, so very strong outcome there. I think it is important when we talk about these medications to talk about cost, because that probably becomes the, the biggest barrier for using these more mainstream. Um, so cost is going to be a concern here. Certainly they're all brand name medications. Generics are not yet available. Um, what I have listed here is each product that we've gone over with the target maintenance dose and the estimated cash price of a 30-day supply. Now, this is just intended to be an estimate um, and is subject to change depending on pharmacy acquisition costs. And as you can see here, fentermine topiramate, looking at a cash price, um, is the cheapest option, with the most expensive options being liraglutide and semaglutide, which happen to be manufactured by the same company, Novo Nordisk, so have the same pricing. Manufacturer savings cards are going to be really important here in helping patients gain access. So I have this savings listed here, which can be very helpful to patients. So for example, say their insurance will cover 75% of the cash price. Um, so that would mean their copay is 25% and then combined with the savings card may actually make the medications a reasonable and affordable price. So these should not be written off as not affordable. Um, I do think it can be helpful that when you're meeting with a patient to talk about these options that they reach out to their insurance first to inquire about cost to avoid um, surprises at the pharmacy after prescribing. Also a quick comment on manufacturer savings cards. Um, so these are only eligible or, or patients 
only patients with commercial or private insurance are eligible for savings cards. So in other words, patients with Medicare Part D, Medicaid, they are not eligible. And that's actually due to a law that went into effect decades ago, where the government was not going to allow for acceptance of coupons or savings cards as it could be implied as them endorsing or supporting a certain product or a certain company. So with that, I'll leave you with these take-home points. Pharmacotherapy for weight loss should be initiated with the intent to be used long-term. We should think about obesity as a chronic disease, just like hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia. And we found that in these studies, it appears that when medications were removed, weight loss resulted. Um, and we also saw that medications were helpful in maintaining weight loss. Semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly has the most robust weight loss data of the currently approved options. Again, terzepatide had some great data as well, but not yet FDA approved. And semaglutide was followed by fentermine topiramate as far as data goes. Treatment should be individualized and factor in comorbidities, patient preference, warnings, and cost. Contraception for women of childbearing age is recommended with all of these agents. In fact, women should be counseled that uh, they, if, if they plan to have a family in the future, that they're going to want to come off of these medications um, and, uh, and prepare for that rather than uh, have something come up while on therapy. And the impact of pharmacotherapy on long-term outcomes, such as cardiovascular events, cardi cancer risk, and mortality represents a key evidence gap in the data surrounding pharmacotherapy for obesity. There is a trial looking at some maglutide in obese patients and cardiovascular outcomes, so I think some of this information will be forthcoming, but we don't have it yet. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.